This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries, official sponsor of Faction 46 and Nice Motorsports Truck Series teams. Forney offers versatile welding and plasma cutting machines, along with a full line of metalworking accessories for beginners, do-it-yourselfers, and professionals. Forney has everything you need for your next metalworking project. Shop for these top-of-the-line products at ForneyIND.com, that's F-O-R-N-E-Y-I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They had been been around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no. I think the the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap, cheapo cars, and that, that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was a chicken. And so he ran off the boat. And actually, he was the guy who who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at lionelracing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. 
Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace. I remember looking at Jeff, I was like, what does this mean? He goes, this, this means we won a championship. I said, no, man, that ain't, that ain't right. We were being a little selfish with it, but, you know, we were a wolf pack. We were we were tight, man. You uh, you couldn't drive a flat blade screwdriver in between us. We brought those other cars in. As soon as Bobby Jr. got in one of them things, man, you want to talk about hitting the afterburners? He hit the afterburners. It was it was on then, and that that Bobby Jr. was a gas masher. Complacency is is the uh, the crack rock of racing. The minute you get complacent is the minute that you lose your teeth. Somebody kick your teeth right in. You can never be complacent. You've been road hard and put up wet as many times as I have. It, it's it's the it's it's not actually the age, just the miles. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, everyone. I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, presented by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace and a track that truly cares about NASCAR history. Steve, I am back home after eight days in Las Vegas and then at Jeannie's Conference in Asheville, North Carolina. And Steve, I can't tell you what it means to me to be able to, number one, sleep in my own bed, and number two, sleep in my own recliner. (laughs) <laughs> well, well, Rick, I can tell you the whole world rejoices at your return. <laughs> and not only am I back home, we picked up Otis from the Doggy Hotel on Friday afternoon. Jeannie actually left her conference early so we could make it back home in time to get him. And we have talked several times about Otis here on the show, but he's never actually made an appearance until now. Already. We're going to have Otis on the show? Yes, we are going to have Otis on the show. So here's Otis. I'm going to bring him in now. Now, Otis, are you glad to be back home with all your toys in your backyard? <laughs> Second question, Otis. I've always wanted to ask you this. Who is your favorite at home? Bark once for Janie, twice for Jesse, three times for Adam, and four times for me. That's a good boy, Otis. You're my favorite, too. Now, this is an important question, Otis. What do you think about Steve Wade? Oh, come on, Otis. You're just mad at me because I won't feed you. Come on, give me a break. (laughs) I scratch you behind your ears. You like that? (laughs) That's a good boy, Otis. Don't you trust that bad man? (laughs) 
Otis. Thank you. Thank you for your time. I appreciate you, buddy. <laughs> Steve, this week in our first segment in the third and final installment of our interview with the one and only Harold Holly, he talks about his intense drive for excellence, parting ways with PPC Racing, getting hooked up with gas masher Bobby Hamilton Jr., and his decision to leave NASCAR and go dirt race. And then in our second segment, we're going to take a look at the February 3rd, 1983 issue of Grand National Scene. This was a preview issue of the upcoming Daytona 500, and it has absolutely nothing to do with Harold Holly. Now, why go through this issue? That's a good question, and I'm going to explain more in our second segment. That's a good question, Rick. Why go through that February issue? has nothing to do with Harold Holly and everything to do with the Daytona 500. What you're thinking, Rick? Hold that thought. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, this week we have new Patreon support from Briar Star and also from Guy Robicho. And listeners, if you are a Patreon supporter, you are going to get one of the commemorative Rusty Wallace issues that we produced for Las Vegas. And Steve, the reaction to that paper, that was a career highlight. Adam actually stood in line and got Rusty to sign a copy. And I think Rusty was really, really pleased with it himself. Oh, I'm pretty sure he was, Rick. was a fine job on that issue. And I'm going to say it again to all the listeners out there. You want to get this commemorative issue. I promise you, it's going to be a keepsake. Now, we did bring enough home on the plane to fulfill all of our Patreon supporters, plus a little birdie in Las Vegas is bringing back two boxes of the papers. So, yes, sign up for Patreon, and you will be getting one of these issues because supplies aren't going to run out anytime soon, it doesn't look like. Plenty of them. Get in line and grab your issue, folks. You can also support us by grabbing a T-shirt or two from our online store. Enter the promo code Sasquatch for 25% off the Scene Vault and Rick and Steve editions. You can show your support with a five-star rating and a written review on whatever podcast platform you catch us on. So listeners, if you can possibly help us out on a monthly basis, that address is patreon.com slash the same vault podcast. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash the same vault podcast. For as little as a dollar a month, you're going to be getting one of these Rusty Wallace commemorative issues of Grand National Saints. So that's a deal. Then if you would prefer to just do a one-time show of support, you can do that via paypal.me slash the same vault podcast or venmo.com slash the same vault podcast. And as a reminder, this show is not affiliated in any way with American City Business Journal's owner of the same brand. People thinking that you were doing something, was that an advantage? Absolutely. Yeah, they were beat getting there. Yep. But it wasn't that. It was it was it was the filling in the gaps that I was telling you about. Right. And when we used to sit down, if we wasn't, like I say, if, if, if we were getting beat in any area, if it was, you know, average race laps in practice, so-and-so, so-and-so, we went back and detailed every single little thing to, to get our system to, 
to where it was. And so also at that time, you know, you, you had so much time in practice. Well, I started averaging up how many runs everybody was getting. You know, this guy gets – and I'll tell you something else, Kowicki, another thing that came from Kowicki. So most of the time in an hour practice, guys would get six runs in. And Alan Kowicki told me one time, he said, the run you didn't get in in practice is the run that lost the race for you. Well, that clicked in my head. He said, if you don't leave that practice and exhaust everything in your mind, he said, if you can't get it done, you're beat. So that that was always in my mind. So I went back and sat down with Dan, and, and I was like, all right, look, man, we're getting six runs. Everybody's getting six runs. I said, I want 12. Wow. He said, how well, you want to do that? I said, you, you play football, didn't you? He said, yeah. I said, all right, we're going to. This is what we're going to do. We're going to figure out how long it takes to change a left front spring, how long it takes to change a right front spring, how long it takes to change a gear, and we're going to put a time limit on, and these guys are going to practice. And he said, all right. I said, so let's figure out a, you know, a happy hour practice, how, many, how long the lap time takes, and we figured it all the way down to where you had like four minutes to change a left front spring. You had two minutes to change a sway bar. You had, I gave them eight minutes to change a gear. From the time that it came in, the jack hit the stop to where the tires were back on the ground it was going out, you had eight minutes. And that turned into where we was getting 12 to 13 runs in a practice, and everybody else was getting six. So when I went back that night and pulled all my notes out and got ready to build my race setup for the next day, I had twice the information to pull from as everybody else. Wow. And that was part of what what did it? At what point did you allow yourself to think the championship was actually going to happen? I never did. Even after, even after we won the championship, and uh, we was riding around in the back of that truck in Memphis. I remember looking at Jeff. I was like, "What does this mean?" He goes, "This this means we won the championship." I said, "No, man, that ain't that ain't right." And I, I couldn't, like, I, I couldn't do that. So as we was riding around, Marcy, Scott, yeah. wonderful. I mean, she was such a great part of our team. Marcy goes, all right, I know what you're thinking, Harold. I said, all right, what am I thinking? She goes, what record's next? I said, <laughs> okay, yeah, I am. She goes, all right, well, this is how many top fives in a season that's ever been done, this and that and so-and-so. I said, where are we at? She said, you got to have three more top fives to beat it. I'm like, it's on. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think we ended up doing that. I think we had to have three more top fives to have the most top fives ever in a season. Uh, the, the claw, like, second was the first loser to us, and that was just the mentality we had. Unfortunately, I still carry that today, and – it runs a lot of people off around you. So you go into the off season. You're the the champion. Uh, 2001. Everything happens at Daytona with Dale and everything. And Jeff wound up running several Cup races the following season for Richard Childress. Was that something you were on board with, or would you have preferred for him to stay put? Stay put. It 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 made me it made us mad for a while. Uh, 
to, to you know, uh, and we were being a little selfish with it, but you know, we were a wolf pack. Yeah, we were we were tight, man. You uh, you couldn't drive a flat blade screwdriver in between us. Jeff was, you know, he was performing so well where it was, you know, it was inevitable that it was going to happen. And then after a while, we finally came to the understanding of, hey, man, you know, this is an opportunity for him, and this, you know, we all supported him. And it kind of inter- it kind of interfered some for a while because we were mad, but we were mad because we were all brothers, you know, and we felt like we were, you know, he was he was leaving, you know, he was he was kind of stepping out on us, but we. After a while, we understood it, and it, then we started jailing again, and everything was fine. How but much? we also switched to Ford, and that that was another huge arrow transition to where we got off for the first three or four or five races, and it took us a little while to, to get a handle on it. And then once we got a handle on it, then, you know, I think I forgot who beat us for the championship that year, but it wasn't by much. But we lost it in the first four or five races from that transition to Chevrolet to Ford. That was where we lost it because kind of lost the handle on our, our our package. Well, that's a, I mean, that brings up a good question. You had been so good with Chevrolet. Why make such a drastic change? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Uh, well, that was a business call that was above our head. So, uh, you know, I think Ford came in with a, you know, with a better opportunities for Greg and, 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 you know, backing for the team and they, they offered him some things that Chevrolet didn't offer at the time. And I think that was part of his decision to, to make that. And, you know, Mark Martin was, was still the Mark, you know, um, so we felt like if we had what. Mark Martin had Jeff and I was like, well, if we got what he's got, like, you know, if we can't beat him. We need to look at ourselves. That was how we convinced ourselves that that move was okay. <laughs> but and it ended up being okay. We built a great relationship with Ford. Um, met some fantastic people. I mean, some of their aero guys and stuff, and they really did do what what they said they was going to do. Like they gave us a cut budget from wind tunnel time and you know, they, they were great to us. How'd you wind up leaving? Uh, Scott, Scott Riggs came and, uh, there was just, you know, it started after Jeff left. Um, I, Jeff and I understood each other so well and Scott required something so much different. And I, I love Scott and still do. We still talk today. But he was just such a different driver than what Jeff was. And our whole team was built around what Jeff, you know, the way he drove, he, you know, it it was it was a tough transition for me. Uh I I didn't dislike working with Scott. We won pretty quick together. So there were some other changes that came in. Honestly. There was uh, a, a guy that was trying to bring some more corporate style attitude, and we were hardcore racers. Yeah, and and I did not like that at all. Uh, so 
me and him butted heads quite a bit. Uh, so eventually I just had enough, and I was like, you know what, I'm, it's time for me to go. So you did wind up moving over to Ed and Sam Renzi's team to work with Bobby Hamilton Jr. a few races into the 2003 season. And results-wise, it was like you guys hit the afterburners. I mean, you evidently came in and turned on the light switch. What kind of changes did you make? Uh, well, Mr. Amick, I was really close with Mr. Amick. He was a great man, somebody I really to, you know, believed in. I used to talk to him about personal stuff, everything. Mr. Amick was a good Christian man, you know. So Mr. Amick had an engine company at the time, and he he got tired of people saying, this engine's good, this engine's bad. He's like, he's like, Harold, this is what I want you to do. He said, I want you to come in and build me some cars. I want you to take them to the racetrack, and if I got a customer that says his engine ain't no good, he said, I want you to pull the motor out of your car and put it in his car and take his motor and put it in your car. He said, I want to show him it ain't my engines is different. I said, yes, sir. So that's what we did. He proved himself right. <laughs> you know, uh, so after that transition, uh, Lyndon decided uh, at the time, you know, uh, Lyndon decided to go in the Army. He, yeah. Lyndon kept talking to me about the Army, kept on on and on, you know. So Lyndon decided to go in the Army whenever he did. Mr. Amick didn't want me to go anywhere, but it, it was like I was going to be hobby racing from Trans Am stuff, and this, and I couldn't do that. Bobby Hamilton Jr. and them approached me. So whenever I went there, Mr. Amick let us take those two cars that I had built for Mr. Amick. They were Chevrolets, but Will Jones was hanging my bodies at the time. And so we carried those over there, and it took me about two weeks to get the first one together. We went to Dover with one of their older cars, and we ended up finishing six. But it was, uh, I mean, we were in jeopardy of getting lapped, and I short-pitted, and it worked out, and we ended up finishing six. But those cars weren't, they just weren't where they needed to be. Uh, and uh, they they weren't very good at all, to be honest with you. And we brought those other cars in. As soon as Bobby Jr. got in one of them things, man, you want to talk about hitting the afterburners. He hit the afterburners. It was it was on then. And that, that Bobby Jr. was a gas masher. <laughs> man. Going into that last race of the season, 2003, there were six drivers in – Contention for the championship. Bobby said he was already counting his title money. Yeah. He he already had picked out what he was going to buy with it. Yeah. What was your outlook? Uh, different than that. I I'm man. I you know I I stay in the fight until the fight's over, and then whenever it's over and I'm far clear of it. And I can look back and go, hey, hey, we won that. Then, uh, then that's kind of the way I handle it. But I, I don't ever, I don't ever take it for granted because complacency, man, complacency is is the the, the crack rock of racing. The minute you get complacent is the minute that you lose your teeth. Somebody kick your teeth right in. You can never be complacent. Bobby left the team midway through the following season to go cup racing with Cal Wells, and then you joined him mm -hmm. shortly thereafter. 
How did all that go? Uh, it started out well. You know, we it, we we went to Daytona and that wasn't a very good time, but we were like fifty horsepower down, so it was a miserable time. But then we went to California and ran tenth or eleventh, uh, and we were like eleventh in points up till we got to Bristol. Well, we had uh, seventy seventy four people, I think. Uh, at that time, we got to Bristol and we were running in the top ten, eighth or seventh or somewhere around in now, there. Now you talking about with Cal? With Cal, okay. Uh, and uh, we got in the wreck. Well, that was one of the new cars that we had built up, and it was the same thing. When we went to Cal. He uh, he had a fleet of cars that he thought was, you know, where they had evolved to. Uh, them things were 200 pounds heavier than, than the chassis that we were building that I was building at the time. They were 200 pounds heavier. The arrow was completely different, this and that. So Cal let us build a fleet of cars, you know, four cars, like Bobby and I wanted to run. And make a long story short, we had 74 people. And as we got going and then we, you know, we established ourselves in the top 15 in points. And they, they had just come out of being 40th in points or something, you know. But once we established ourselves in the top 15, next thing I know, I come in the shop one day and we got 34 people, you know. Well, then we wrecked the next four weeks. And when we wrecked, we couldn't get the cars back together. So then we started having to run that old stuff. And Bobby's a pit bull. I'm a pit bull. Uh, we weren't running where we wanted to run I couldn't make happen for him what I needed to make happen for him. It was, and we were just, I mean, we, we were like two mad, rabid pit bulls after the, you know, on the same bone. I just, it got to a point where I was like, man, I can't, you know, my hands are tied. I can't do anything. And Joe Custer uh, talked to me from Haas, and then I left and went there. Now, where did everybody go? Was it just your mentality? that kind of scared everybody off? Where did everybody go? From You said you started out with 74, and then you came in one day and there was 34. Oh, no, no, it wasn't, wasn't that. It was, uh, the, you know, there were there some of those guys that would, that would hire a lot of people to get the race team established. Mm-hmm. And then once it got established, then they would lose half of them. And that's kind of what happened. Okay. I think it was a budgetary thing. Okay. But... Either way, we couldn't, you know, we didn't have enough manpower to get the cars back together, and uh, that made Bobby and I miserable because we he he for sure didn't want to run bad, and I for, and I didn't, you know, that was that was killing us. It was eating us from the inside out. You and Jeff got the opportunity to work together again at the cup level in mm-hmm. two thousand seven. What was that experience like? Uh, peaks and valleys. You know, Haas at that time wasn't wasn't where it needed to be as a as a company. By no means were you know we the greatest crew chief and driver or whatever, but we didn't have what we needed to to be there with what uh, we was getting Hendrick Motors and Hendrick chassis. But the, you know, I hate to say it, but that wasn't enough. Yeah, <laughs> uh, not at that level. So the first race. That Jeff and I worked together, we finished seventh at Martinsville. 
Sixth or seventh. Well, that was cool, but when you started, when we got to these other places, you know, it was mile and a half. The arrow, the whole nine yards. Like, I couldn't put the bodies on like I needed to. I couldn't do what I needed to do. Uh, but then whenever we'd get to a racetrack to where that it wasn't so important, we'd run good again. That's a tough thing, too, because Jeff's a winner, wants to win. Um, I'm a, you know, I've been fortunate enough to, to win some races and want to win. And when you're out there beating your head against the wall and you just can't do what you need to do or what you feel like you know you can do because your hands are somewhat tied, and that, that'll eat you. Like, it, somebody might as well be pouring acid on my head. Uh, so that that part was tough. Now, when we switched to the the COT car, I was all for it. And and part of the Were reason— you really? Oh, well, well, yes, and I'll tell you why. I was all for it because NASCAR was, was headed this direction. Well, the, the, the managers at Haas wouldn't let us work on the Koi car, car yesterday. They wouldn't let us put new bodies on. They wouldn't let us do this. They wouldn't let us do that because we were going to change to this. But we were getting our teeth kicked in right now, yeah. you know. So, you know, going along with Hendrick and testing and, and, and working with the, uh, the, you know, car tomorrow, uh, I was all for it because we were getting something new. Now, after I seen how they was going to regulate it and the way it was direction, <laughs> I wasn't for it at all. <laughs> Be careful what you ask for. Yeah, be careful what you ask for. But out of those 10 races that we ran with that car, I think we had eight top 10s, two wrecks. But as soon as we had equipment that was up to par, we ran in a top 10 every week, you know. So that whole experience was not, you know, it was peaks and valleys. So you mentioned the car tomorrow and – all the regulations that went with it. Was there a specific point where you felt the box that you were being put into starting to shrink when it came to your creativity and what you could do on a car, or was it a more gradual process? No, no, it was that COT car. Was it really? Mm -hmm. Yeah, when when those regulations started uh, coming in and I seen how they were going to police it, and then they came in with a grid and, you know, all the magic that I'd, I'd worked over the years of twisting templates and doing this and doing that. And to me, that was part of the story of racing. Yeah. Uh, and then when they came in where you, they want to put you in taxi cabs where, you know, everything was the same. Uh, to me, that was like, uh, I was just not interested at all. Like my, my, Fire flicker started flickering really hard at that point. I started looking yeah. for other ways to do things. You won three ARCA races with Corey LaJoy driving and Randy as the car owner. What were you thinking going to work for Randy LaJoy as your boss? I can't <laughs> even imagine that. <laughs> Man, he's such a great guy. Yeah. Uh, and you know, he, He's 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 such an experienced and smart racer. You sit down and talk with him, and like, man, he's knowledgeable, like big time. But I, uh, yeah, I thought I, I saw. Oh boy, this is getting ready to be a ride. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I tell you, man, Corey's awesome. Yeah. He's he's 
He's he's a great race car driver. I wished it, it would have worked out to where he and I could have could have ended up doing something together at the cup level because I I really feel like that that we had something that could click. You haven't worked at any of NASCAR's top three national levels in several years. Was that a conscious decision on your part? Yes, sir. Okay, I'm done. So that was that was a decision that you made. Yeah. Was there a specific point where you made that? Was there a a final straw, so to speak? Yeah. Um, I got to uh, when I started working with the Coulters, Joey Coulter. Uh, that was a new inspiration for me because he was a young guy that didn't have a lot of experience, and I somewhat was able to, you know, I, I took a little bit of my crew chief hat off and put my coaching hat on. That was that was a good time when Joey and I went to. Uh, we we arca raced. We we end up winning some races, and then then uh, we uh, had an opportunity at RCR. Well, I tried to go to work at RCR once before, and it didn't work out. It worked out for about six hours, and I just went back out the door. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, when I got up there the second time, and we got going with that truck deal, you know, I. I realized I was like, man, I miss this. I'm, I miss this. And, and working, uh, working for Richard was such an honor. I mean, I have so much respect for that man, and he is so great to work for. Mike Dillon was great to me. I mean, that, that place was really, really, that's one of the best jobs I ever had was working at RCR. On the truck side. On the truck side, really? yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you opened the door, so I got to walk in. You had gone to RCR once before? Yeah. What happened? When was it? It was when I left PPC. Okay. Green was uh, up there, and he was you know, it wasn't clicking for them the way that it needed to click. And Richard had called me and wanted me to, to come up there and put Jeff and I back together. And I went up there and I had the job. Never had officially went to work, but I had a job, so I went up there and I went through the place and uh, I seen some of the stuff that was going on. And Todd walked me through the shop and barrier. Yep. Okay. And I always had a ton of respect for Todd. Still do. Uh, but Todd walked me through the shop and I said, "Well, what about this? You know, whatever steering box?" I said, "You Green ain't gonna never." He's not going to drive, you know, he's never going to get a feel for a car with it. He goes, oh, well, you can't change that because we got to deal with this. And, it, you know, uh, there was probably eight or nine, ten, half a dozen things that I went through there and picked out that uh, basically told that I couldn't change. You know, I was going to have to make it work. And I was like, all right, I better go see Richard. <laughs> so I went up and seen him and. Richard said, what, what, what do you think? I said, I said, Mr. Richard, there's there's a lot of things you got going on here. I said, you got a great facility, huge place. You got a lot of things, but there's there's some things that I can't fix for you. I said, until, until I can turn the apple cart upside down a little bit, there's some things I can't fix for you. He goes, well, what, what, do, you, what do you think I need? I said, until that the internal gets changed and a lot of these things get changed, I said, the best thing I can do is tell you to hire a sports psychologist. He said, what? 
I said, yeah. I said, you, you're going to get somebody to communicate with Green because uh, the, I can't fix what you've got going on. And I said, I'm going to fail if I come up here, and I don't, I don't want to fail. So you're talking about, like, parts and pieces. They had deals with different yeah. companies, and you mm-hmm. had to run that particular yeah. part. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. And there was just the combination of parts and pieces at the time was not stuff that I knew that I couldn't make work. Uh, you are racing dirt now. Yes, sir. And you were telling me before that your schedule is crazy. Yeah. This year it's not been so bad. But 2015, I decided that was it for me. I went to RCR, uh, Kyle Bush, and then when Maury Gallagher got GMS going, he kind of hired me as a director of competition there to help him get it going. And then once that I got it to a point and saw where he was, uh, you know, he he was wanting to get a whole lot bigger than I wanted to be involved in, and I, but I stayed with him long enough to help him get what he needed to to start getting going, and then then after that I took off and went dirt racing. But yeah, it's uh dirt 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 racing will humble you in a hurry. <laughs> How so? Uh, you can be at the same racetrack, you know, uh, if you, you stay at the same racetrack three nights, one night you're a hero. The next night you liable to get off the tee box a 16th of an inch wrong and you're in a B main trying to get in the show because it's, it's so competitive at that super level. So competitive. And those guys are so good. Brandon over to Jonathan Davenport, you know, all those guys, uh, they're, man, they're they're so damn good. Where you can't, you you just can't imagine how. I mean, they're they're just masters of of what they do. And if you miss it this much, one night you're sitting there getting your picture took in victory lane. The next night you're standing on the tailgate watching them. Do you enjoy that, or is it still pressure? It's still pressure, uh, but I I enjoy it. Yeah. Uh, I'm getting to the age now to where that the the maintenance it takes to work on them things is is getting a little past me. Fifty six years old, but I I've, I've been running hard racing for thirty five years, you know. But the the maintenance side of it, I, I don't really care about. Like it's just a bunch of hard work. <laughs> the the winning part's fun. But the the maintenance side's tough. Fifty six years old is not old. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been road hard and put up wet as many times as I have. It it's it's the it's it's not actually the age, just the miles. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Is there anything else you'd like to get across? Anything in particular? Any other good? Sto- well, I know I've missed some good stories, but uh. No, I just, uh, you know, everybody that uh, I've been associated with, uh, you know, Chad Little, Jeff Green, Bobby Hamilton Jr., Mike McLaughlin, Johnny Salter, all these people that, uh, Joey Coulter, uh, I've been with them now going on 14 years. The Coulters have been wonderful for, for me and had had a great opportunity to win, to win. You know, Joey and I have, we won at ARCA, we won at Trucks. We run. We wanted, uh, you know, asphalt late models, dirt late models, crate late. 
crate late models, and now we've got into modified racing, and Joey and I have won a modified race. So I really got to thank Joey Coulter a lot because they uh, they've given me a great opportunity, and they're him and his family and the and the Coulters have took good care of Pam and I, and and uh, it's been a really cool ride with Joey because we wanted everything that we've touched. Like, you know, every series that we've been in, we won. I'm trying to talk him into getting us a big old cigarette boat where we could race from, like, Miami to, <laughs> you know, over the Caribbean and back yeah, or something. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, I said, it takes four people, man, you know. So me, you, your dad, we can get somebody else in there. and But, let's, but like, let's get off the asphalt. <laughs> but I, I I just want to thank all those people that uh, I've been able to to meet over the years and guys that have been with me and uh, stuff like that. It, it's it's and, and NASCAR because uh, um, for a kid like me, you know, it it was an opportunity to 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 give to give me some roads in life that nothing else would have ever gave me if 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 it hadn't happened. This segment is brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing show place. As I was going through this final portion of our interview, I kind of came to the conclusion that Harold Holly is racing's version of Yogi Berra. Now, Yogi was famous for his sayings that were such nonsense that they made perfect sense. You know, things like nobody goes there anymore. It's too crowded. <laughs> <laughs> or when you come to a fork in the road, take it. Now, Harold's adages aren't like that. They're not nonsense. They are racing wisdom. And Harold has a bunch of these sayings. So one that stood out to me was, we were so tight, you couldn't have driven a flat blade screwdriver between us. <laughs> <laughs> and then Bobby Hamilton Jr. was a gas Masher. Now, this one isn't exactly about what Harold says as much as how he says it, the inflection. He was a gas masher. <laughs> well, at least you didn't say he was a gas passer. <laughs> <laughs> There's only room enough for one of those on this show, and it ain't me. <laughs> and it ain't Harold. That thing would turn on a dime and give you a nickel back and change. That's a nice race car right there. Another one. That ain't going to happen, Captain. So, yes, I love to talk to Harold Holly because you never know what's going to come out of his mouth. What kind of saying he's going to come up with. We should do a Harold Holly sayings t-shirt. Now, that's a pretty good idea right there. That thing would be full of words front and back. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a question, Steve. Uh-huh. How long would it take you to change a gear in a car? Well, it depends on how fast the mechanic can work. That's about Her it. Harold Holly gave his guys eight minutes to do that at the racetrack so that they could maximize their time out on the racetrack and get the most runs in possible during practice. And, you know, eight minutes, I'm kind of like you. I, I mean, I could beat that with no problem whatsoever. It takes me just three minutes to drive to the garage where we get work done on our cars. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. I do not do this show because I'm a mechanical genius. I can tell you that. 
And again, that's the kind of laser focus that Harold had and the intensity that he had for his job as a crew chief. Jeff Green clinched the 2000 Bush Series Championship three races early at Memphis. Okay, three races early. Now, you know that had to stink up the joint. What a dog finish to the season. Otis, get him. <laughs> Sick him, boy. <laughs> Otis, Otis, I got a pork chop. I got a pork chop. Steve, I don't want to hear anything about any kind of stinking playoff to make things more exciting. That season in particular, there was no way on God's green earth that anybody other than Jeff Green should have been the champion. They're celebrating at Memphis. And Marcy Scott, who was the team's PR rep and who we lost several years ago to breast cancer, she looked at Harold and she was like, I know what you're thinking. And they had won the championship. It doesn't get any higher than that, but they still needed another top five finish or so to break the record for most top five finishes in a single season. And Harold was like, bring it on. The championship was a fleeting thing to Harold, and the next goal up was, let's go after this top five record. And sure enough, Jeff finished fourth at Phoenix and third at Homestead, and he got that record. My guess is, though, Harold would have liked something a little bit better, don't you think? Harold Holly being Harold Holly, Jeff did not win either of those two final races, so I'm sure that Harold came away just a little bit disappointed he won the championship going away by more than 600 points. He got the record for most top five finishes, yeah. but Jeff didn't win either of those last two races. And I agree. Harold would have wanted it that way. That's how intense he was. And here's a question that is absolutely impossible to answer. When is good, good enough? And Steve, you're really old. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> and kind of wise, what do you think? When is good, good enough? Rick, that is an impossible question to answer. But I have a theory. Good is good enough if you have done or a team has done better than it expected. Okay? Good is good enough if you are better than everyone thought you were going to be. Now, if you have a caliber of team that Harold had with Jeff, good is not good enough because you expected it to be good. You expected a challenge for a championship, and you won that championship, and you did win the highest number of top five finishes. But even though you had two top five finishes in the final two races of the year, those were not victories. And we've already mentioned this. I'm sure. Harold would have loved to have that rather than two more top fives. I think it's the level that a team performed defines what is good and not good. Obviously, I've never been on a race team. I've never raced myself. I don't know what it's like to be a crew chief, but this is the way that I approach this podcast. A lot of people have asked me over the years, what is your favorite episode or interview? And my standard response to that is the next one. I don't want to ever think that our best work is behind us. That's also why I work several interviews ahead right now with the two week break in December factored in, we have enough really good content to get us all the way to the first episode 
of 2024. Rick, I think just like you do, good content is not guaranteed. You have to keep striving for it. And that's what we do by getting ahead. I never want to get into a situation where the well is so dry that we have to run an interview that isn't very good just because we don't have anything else to use. And that's the challenge. And to be honest, I love that chase for the next great interview. And I, Steve, I don't know how many times we have looked at each other after finishing up talking to with somebody and we'll look at each other and go, Hey, I think we've got something here. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. We've done that plenty of times. And I like to think the listeners agree with this. And you know what? There has been a time or two where we just looked at each other and kind of shrugged and said, <laughs> well, better luck next time. <laughs> <laughs> That's the nicest way we could have said it. <laughs> or I'll call you after doing an interview on my own. I'll say something to the effect of, you ain't going to believe what so-and-so just told me. This oh, is the best interview we've ever done. <laughs> well, Rick, I've heard that out of you plenty of times. And I'll tell you when I heard the most excited, you ain't going to believe who I just talked to, response from you, L.W. Wright. Oh, man, were you so right about that one? Oh, you had to bring that up, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> Jeff won the championship in 2000 and Harold and the rest of the team expected things to keep right on rolling in 2001. But then the last lap of the Daytona 500 happened and Jeff wound up driving the partial Winston cup schedule for Richard Childress racing that Kevin Harvick was supposed to do. And Steve, the PPC racing guys were probably not very happy with Jeff for what they assumed was turning his back on the brotherhood, but that was the ultimate danged. If you do danged, if you don't scenario in which both sides were absolutely in the right. Absolutely. How can you fault a driver like Jeff green for wonder race in Winston cup competition? And how can you fault the team for saying our driver with whom we've enjoyed so much success is leaving us? Uh, it's, it's a, a delicate balance, Rick. Well, you can't blame Jeff for going after that opportunity. Not only is it a Winston cup opportunity, it's a Winston cup opportunity with Richard Childress racing. Exactly. But at the same time, like you said, Harold and the crew were half killing themselves to give Jeff the best stuff that he could possibly drive. And I guess to them, at least at first, it looked like he was turning his back on him and all the work that they had done. Now, they did get back on the same page eventually, but then Jeff left to go cup racing on a full-time basis. Scott Riggs came in, and even though Scott won, his style was pretty much a polar opposite to what Jeff's had been. And then Harold wound up leaving PPC, and I got into all kinds of trouble over that thanks to this new fangled thing called the Internet. Now, when it comes to the internet, Rick, <laughs> I can tell you, you are not the only guy to get into all kinds of trouble if you get my drift. <laughs> Keith Barnwell was the team manager at PPC Racing, and he had given me the heads up that Harold was leaving. And at scene at the time, we had had a once a week print schedule. So standard operating procedure had always been to talk to my sources, write the story, and it wouldn't be seen until the next week's issue of scene. 
So people would feel pretty comfortable in telling me things early, knowing that it would not be in the paper for another week. Yeah, that's one thing that made seem pretty popular with people working in racing. They knew they could tell us everything and not see it in print until the appropriate time, which is usually about a week later. That was a strong point. However, SceneDaily.com <laughs> <laughs> had just made its grand entrance into the world. So I talked to Keith on a Tuesday or Wednesday about Harold leaving. He was thinking that it wasn't going to be released for another week in the print edition. But I wrote that story and up it went on SceneDaily.com that day. And Steve, the team had not been told yet about Harold leaving. Yes, yeah, cyberspace is a wonderful thing <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> and honestly, I do take ownership of that one. I didn't mislead Keith intentionally, but I just filed the story like I always did. And this time it went right out right then for all the world to see. And that was my introduction to the immediacy of the internet. Now, at that time, Rick, you were not the only staffer to go through the same thing. It took us a little while to adjust to the internet. Well, it took me a while to live that one down with Keith and Greg Hollis, huh. yeah. the team owner. Let me tell you. <laughs> that was the same consequence for all the staffers who went through the same thing. Harold eventually joined forces with Bobby Howington Jr. in 2003. Steve, did you see what it did there? The team was sponsored by the United States Marine Corps. Harold and Bobby Jr. joined forces. Uh, yeah, I saw what you did. <laughs> brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Get him, Otis. Why do I get the image of you sitting in the barracks with a bucket over your head singing, from the halls of Montez. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that episode on the Ann Griffith show as well. You know, Gomer showing up with the Marines. I can tell you one thing. If you messed up like Gomer did with the real Marine Corps, you wouldn't get a bucket over your head. You get a bucket up your butt and you'd be <laughs> kicked right out of there. And just like with Jeff Green, Harold went to work on Bobby Hamilton Jr.'s cars and they hit warp speed and we talked to bobby jr about harold just a few weeks ago in episode 257 about halfway through the season 2003 this character by the name of harold holly comes on board how did that come about he was he actually talked to me to go to the 10 car nobody knows this the 10 cup next quick car really yeah i was in the 25 with fred okay. Winky. yeah yeah he came over to we was at texas he came over to me and he was like, hey, what's your plans for next year? And I was like, well, they say I'm here, but with the Marine sponsor, they only sign one year at a time. I said, so anything can change. I said, I could be here today and gone by October. He was like, come talk to me. So I went and talked to him and he was trying to get me in the 10 car, but they didn't know what they were going to do with the 10 car. They didn't know if Nesquik was coming back. So it was really up and down. Right. And finally... Uh, I think we went somewhere. We went somewhere and Fred did something. I, I mean, it was like complete opposite. And everybody was like, what are we doing? And we ran like, I mean, awful, awful. So I knew, I was like, okay, there's a time, there's there's going to be a change coming. So I went and talked to Harold. I said, if they don't do nothing over here, what are you doing? And he was like, 
wow, what did you hear about over here? So we're talking back and <laughs> yeah. forth. And yeah. finally, I told him, I said, go talk to Ed. And Ed, you know how Ed is. Ed's like, how much is it? By three. Because Ed Renzi was not afraid to spend money to win races, period. So he went and talked to Ed, and all of a sudden, it's just how it happened. And then he got, he was already kind of real big with Yates and all that stuff over there. Harold was, and um, he started buying up cars over there and started buying up Lennon Amex cars because he built them over there prior. And it was just like, I tell people this all the time, you're only as good as what you're in. I mean, uh who's the latest greatest ross chastain okay he's only as good as that one car you know dale earnhardt if he if he could if that man could really see the air and he really was i mean don't get me wrong he had his system and it worked but he would have won every he'd have won every race tell every talladega and daytona race he was only as good as what he had so not taking anything away from him but that's what we were you were you was as good as what you have so once once all that stuff took off it was like a light switch. It was like everything I was doing was working. How I drove this, it was working. And it was like, this is even better than what it was before. Then Harold was over there like, oh, so you like the way that felt? Like, yeah, well, we can do some more. I mean, it was just getting better and better and better. And, I, you know, it just took off. You guys came together so quickly. What was it about your relationship with Harold in particular that worked so well? I, what I liked about Harold was he would tell you, here's what you need to do on the race car and why you need to do it. It wasn't like prior of, go put this in there. You think that's going to be, go put it in there. Harold would like show you. And it was like the first couple races, I was like, this car, because he would tell me. And, he, and, and the very first time we went testing, he was like, all right, it's going to be a little free but after three or four laps, this baby should be right. And it was like, I think, one lap off. And then it was like the next run, it was like, this. I mean, where's this guy been? You know, now I know. I always thought Jeff Green was good. Jeff Green was okay. Harold is what made Jeff Green good. And I, and I say that to anybody. You know, not, not taking anything away from Jeff. He had to drive the car. But Jeff was good. Harold made Jeff Green. Just like, I mean, all we done is basically got him over there, brought some good people over there that he knew he was involved with, and then all of a sudden we win four races in a year. We're beating Kevin. In half a year. Yeah. Matt Kenseth is wondering what we're doing. So that tells you, and, and I tell people all the time, yeah, I, w I, w I was already at the 25 car. We was already at Ford. We was already had all this stuff. What did we change? Yeah. I'll ask... Jeff Monday, when I talked to him, you know, Bobby Jr. said that you weren't that great, Harold. And, and you can tell him I said it. And you'll have will, to. He will agree. He might not agree to you, but he will go home and think, no, Bobby was right. right. You'll have to answer to Michelle. Yeah. Well, I, 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 will tell I take her, it back. I take it back. <laughs> I, I will tell her, too. The reason y'all won is because of Jeff. I mean, because of Jeff drove the car, but Harold is the one that got you there. Bobby Jr. and Harold won in just their third race together. They won four races the rest of the 2003 season, and they were one of six teams in contention for the championship at the last race in Homestead. Let me say this a little bit louder for those at the back of the room listening to this. They were one of six teams in contention for the championship at the last race in Homestead.
speak up, Rick. Come on, say what you mean. Give us a break here, will you? Playoffs. We don't need no staking playoffs. And while yeah. we're at it, Bobby Allison has 85 wins, not 84. <laughs> this has been a recording. <laughs> as good as they were in 2003 when they went cup racing together, it just didn't work out. And again, just like what had happened with Jeff Green, the Beatles broke up. And I'll make this statement. I might get a little bit of flack for it, but Jeff Green and then Bobby Hamilton Jr., they were never as good without Harold Holly as they were with him. And Steve, the same is true in reverse. What might have happened had Jeff and or Bobby Jr. and Harold been able to work together under better circumstances at the cup level? Now, that's the million-dollar question, and it's one that I would be willing to bet that they've asked themselves a time or two. Oh, come on, Rick. You know they've asked themselves that question a time or two. It's only natural. Look at the difference. Come on. And here's the thing that I truly respect about Harold Holly. He marches to the beat of his own drummer, and when he saw that things were changing in the NASCAR garage to the point where he wasn't going to be able to do some of the things on the car that he wanted to, he did not hang around just to collect a paycheck. He went dirt racing, and he's not on the easy road retirement plan either. He's racing more than he ever has. He told me the other day that they had raced last year, I want to say something like a hundred and five or six times. Good grief. The fact is, Harold Holly is a racer. And Rick, you will get absolutely no argument from me. I agree 100%. Hey, race fans, John Dodson here from NASCAR Technical Institute. NASCAR Tech is open and enrolling with classes starting every three to six weeks. In our 48-week automotive technology program, students learn everything from vehicle electronic technology to diagnostics and drivability. And as our exclusive educational provider for NASCAR, we offer a 15-week NASCAR elective where students learn engines, fabrication, aerodynamics, pit crew essentials, and more. NASCAR Tech also offers 36-week welding and CNC machining training programs so you can choose the path that best fits your career goals. Ready to see how you can get started? Visit uti.edu slash NASCAR today. NASCAR Technical Institute prepares graduates to work as entry-level automotive service technicians. Some graduates who take NASCAR-specific electives also may have job opportunities in racing-related industries. NASCAR Tech is an educational institution and cannot guarantee employment or salary. This segment is brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing show place. February 3rd, 1983 issue of Grand National Scene. More than five years ago, when you and I first met for lunch that day, to discuss the same vault project. The bottom line has always been preserving all 32 years of scene content. As a matter of fact, that first day that we had lunch back in what early 2018, yeah. we didn't even mention a podcast. Huh. No, we sure didn't. The reason we had that lunch was to talk about digitizing scene and make it into an archive 
that people could access online. And regular listeners of this show, they know I have every issue of scene from the first in 1977 to the last in 2009. And while it is complete, there are a lot of issues in those early years that are in pretty rough shape. And honestly, yes, some sort of disaster could very easily wipe them all out. And that I know of, this is the only complete run in existence. I think Appalachian State might have most of them in their motorsports archive. I know that ACBJ, I think, might have a complete run. I don't know if they do or not. I know for a fact that this is a complete run. It is a heck of a thing to have a tornado warning here in our area in Yakin County. And other than Jeannie, Adam, Jesse, and Otis's safety, I'm worried about these doggone newspapers. And I actually started scanning the newspaper myself. And I got through the first five and a half years. I also scanned every cover and several of the more historic issues after mid-1982 before kind of giving up. I mean, it took me a long time to do that, and it only got me through the first half of the first of four shells of the first of two bookcases. <laughs> you did a lot of work, Rick, and it must have been so frustrating for you to have things go so slowly with much more to do. I mean, no wonder, man. Words cannot express how wonderful it is to do a search for something in the papers that I preserved and be able to find it with just a few keystrokes. And Harold Holly is actually responsible for pushing me over the edge to start scanning these things again. Now, he is the guilty party for a couple of different reasons. Number one, Harold was featured in one of Winston Cup scene's infamous photo bios. And just like we did with Archie Kennedy and a few others over the years, I was going to feature that edition in our issue of the week segment, but there was only one problem. I had no idea when Harold's photo bio had appeared in scene, and he didn't either, other than to say it was sometime in the late 1980s or early 90s, and that made it all but impossible to find that particular issue other than going through every table of contents to see who the photo bio featured that week. So I sat there looking at all these papers going, it's in there somewhere. This would be so much easier if this archive was searchable. You and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. I've fired up the old scanner again, and my goal is to scan everything through when I left scene in mid-2003 in the next three years. And everything, everything, the entire 32 years within the next five. Now, I know that there were digital copies of the papers beginning at some point when they were made available to our subscribers, but who knows where those backups might be or if we'll ever gain access to them. So I've got some work to do. I actually took my scanner with me to Jeannie's conference last week. I spent half of Wednesday and all day Thursday scanning 16 issues from late 1982 through 1983. Thursday, I spent 10 hours scanning papers. You know, Rick, you sent me samples of that work you've done. And I tell you what, it's first rate. I was really encouraged to see all that because I said to myself, I'm looking at samples of the way it could be for everyone to access scene the way it should be. Good work. 
And before anybody asks, why don't you just pay to have it done professionally? (laughs) (laughs) Don't look at me. (laughs) I got a quote at one point of 60 cents per page. So that would be $30 for a 50 page issue. And there are a lot of issues in this archive. I also got a second quote for the entire thing. And it was right at $51,000. I'm not surprised. And I'm not going to go down the whole 5,000 mile slash camper salesman who must not be named rabbit hole. From my point of view, I got made a fool of during that whole episode. And I should have given up at that point. But just like Harold Holly, I stay in the fight until the fight's over. It's probably not any smarter to scan everything than it was to trust a social media influencer, but these papers have to be preserved. And I agree with you 100%, Rick. They have to be preserved. Absolutely. I've actually had a handful of people ask how they could help scan, and I appreciate that more than words could ever fully explain, but the scanner that I use costs $700. And that's an expense that I can't in good conscience ask anybody else to come up with, not to mention the crazy amount of time involved. I can't ask somebody else to do that. This is my crazy tilting it windmill, Don Quixote. (laughs) (laughs) I think you're doing a fine job and there is a lot of work to do, but I ask you, keep an open mind. If you need help and can get that help, do that. Steve, with all that being said, why pick this issue? It is one of the ones that I scanned this week in Asheville, and it turned up some information that I did not know and that kind of jogged your memory a little bit. I had always been under the impression that your first Daytona 500 as a reporter was in 1976. You've talked before on the show about how difficult it was to come up with an appropriate lead for a race that had finished the way it did between Richard Petty and David Pearson, but stop the presses. We've got some important information to add. <laughs> oh, we've made a discovery in this issue. There was a compilation of several writers memories of the Daytona 500. And in this piece, you wrote that you had been in the press box for the 1972, 1973 and 1974 Daytona 500s. I think it's important to note here that I was four years old when you covered your first Daytona 500 in 1972. Although you had been there in 1972 and 73, you wrote that 1974 was your first year as part of a complete season-long motorsports coverage program and that you were going to be filing for both the morning and afternoon editions of the Roanoke paper. And you wrote in this issue, I loaded up the company car with a typewriter, record books, overstuffed briefcase, which included all manner of pens, pencils, paper, paper clips, stapler, notebooks, erasers, stopwatch, press releases, folders, photos, ruler, and pocket calculator, luggage, cooler, and assorted odd (laughs) items. The car was huge, but its trunk was so stuffed, the front end almost was lifted off the ground. And I made a very inauspicious start to Daytona by doing a couple of loops on an icy road in Roanoke, Virginia, five minutes after I started out. 
I also tried a few shortcuts, which, coupled with the bad weather, turned a 10-hour trip into a 14-hour one. I was so exhausted by the time I reached the motel, I couldn't eat the meatball sandwich I picked up at the junk food shop. I spent the week learning what was going on and diligently producing so much copy <laughs> that my editor told me to knock it off. <laughs> they had no place to put everything I was sending. After the 500, body and soul worn out, I returned to the motel to pack for the journey home. I couldn't understand why the car was so much lighter on the return trip. It also took 14 hours until I discovered I'd left my cooler, briefcase, and typewriter in the motel room. <laughs> I did manage to bring back a half bushel of grapefruit. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, I don't know what it says about our relationship or how I see you or whatever, but I'm here to tell you I am shocked that you left your cooler <laughs> that you left your cooler behind, much less your typewriter. <laughs> well, I did manage to bring the grapefruit back along with the, uh, my box, so I was okay with that. <laughs> I just lost out on the briefcase, the cooler, and the typewriter, which I eventually replaced. Rick, that trip down there was awful. It had been a big snowstorm from Virginia all the way down to Savannah, Georgia. Interstate 95, only one lane was open and i had to travel about 25 miles an hour all the way from the florence south carolina area until i got to savannah when the ice was just water and i could pick up speed again you gotta know that's exhausting because when you're driving you're just so tense that you're gonna run into something oh, run yeah. over something i could not get off the interstate to get gasoline because up ramp the ramp going up was coated and so yeah. nice. I thought I'd never make it. I did, though, but man, did I ever lose a few years on that one. I came back from the Daytona 500 one year in that kind of conditions. Yeah, about Columbia, South Carolina, the snow started. And by the time I got to Charlotte, it was all over the place. And then when I got to our exit in Yakinville, Normally, what would be an hour north of Charlotte, I had to pee so bad <laughs> because like you, I wasn't going to get off at no. an exit anywhere because I no. didn't want to get stuck. Once I got to our exit, I stopped on the exit ramp and well, uh, okay. look, I'm just glad that nobody else was around. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> You're lucky it didn't freeze if you get my drift. What did you do without a typewriter? You left your typewriter? Did you ever well, get it back? It was my own. Yes. The motel sent me the briefcase and the typewriter back. I never saw the cooler. <laughs> <laughs> I used to have nightmares about going to the racetrack and having a really big story to file and then realizing that I'd left my computer back in the Charlotte office. So I can only imagine your pain. Now, in all seriousness, that little nugget is just one of the reasons why I am so adamant that these papers have to be maintained. It brought back that memory for you. I had always been under the impression from you that 1976 was your first Daytona, when in fact it had been four years before that, 1972, when A.J. Foyt won the Daytona 500. Yeah, let me explain something, Rick. That 1976 Daytona 500, as you know, was that crash 
between Richard Petty and Dave Pierce on the last lap and the exciting finish afterwards. Now, what I saw on the track, I had never seen before. I was so stunned by it that I couldn't think of anything to write. I mean, Rick, I sat there, I know, for 45 minutes and not type a word. And I was panicking that I was not going to be able to get anything back to the wrong paper and I was going to lose my job. Now, I finally did write something. And I guess it passed muster because they didn't fire me when I got back. But you can laugh at this all you want. That experience pretty much wiped away a lot of memories of previous Daytona 500. When you asked me about those earlier Daytona 500s, I remember 1975 when Benny Parsons won the race. Benny was in the press box giving his interview, and he was asked, how did you know Richard wanted you to join him in the draft and take you to victory? And Benny said, well, he just waved his arm and said, come on, come on, come on. And I thought that was pretty cool. That's how I remembered, Rick. So you really struggled with that race late on the 76 Daytona 500. Ooh, did I ever. There are some of our listeners who evidently have access to newspaper archives, be the first person to come up with Steve's race lead from the 1976 Daytona 500 in the Roanoke Times. You will receive a copy of our Las Vegas commemorative issue and our Darlington commemorative issue. Well, listeners, if you can come up with that 1976 story in the Roanoke Times, Call me first. I'll beat two commemorative issues. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to the rest of this 40-page paper, it's a preview of the 25th Daytona 500, and the lead story on the track's history was written by Houston Lawing. That's a name I'm familiar with, but I'm not quite clear on what he did in the sport. So who was Houston other than having a great first name? Houston Long was the first NASCAR PR man. He okay. worked at NASCAR for years, and he was really a pioneer on how to get the job done. And the press box at Daytona International Speedway is named after Houston Long. I thought it was me. I thought I saw the Houston on the press box. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> I can't even on my silliest days make that claim. <laughs> there was a short news story in this issue on plans by CBS Sports to provide viewers with both in-car video and audio during the Daytona 500. Now, they'd had the in-car camera before, but the audio was kind of a new thing, and the cars that were going to be carrying both were going to be Kel Yarbrough and Tim Richmond. Now, Waddell Wilson, he was Kel's crew chief at Rainier Racing at the time, he said, since neither Kel nor I are real big on mouthing a lot over the radio between the pits and the car, then I guess CBS can have a lot of time with Kel if he's in a mood to talk. And I hope our car is running so good, he wants to tell the world all about it. Now, who won the 1983 Daytona 500? Well, we know who. That would be Kel Yarbrough using the same slingshot move that he had pulled off the year before on Darrell Waltrip. This time he did it on Buddy Baker going down the backstretch on the last lap with CBS viewers in tow. About that audio, I hope CBS has some kind of delay on the audio back and forth because <laughs> they might get some things said that they don't want to hear. Well, I would be willing to bet that would have been the case if they had been with Buddy Baker. <laughs> <laughs> This was the age of the Valley Girl. 
Oh, yeah. And in your column, you imagined a conversation between Richard Petty and Bobby Allison looking at Richard's new car. Richard, <laughs> check out my cruise mobile. I mean, like, isn't it totally bitching? <laughs> Bobby, for sure, dude. It's choice. Awesome. Like, let me case it around. Richard, it's major maximum brilliant. I'm talking Mondo Perfecto. It gets me hyper looking at it. I mean, can you relate? Bobby, really fine. Super outrageous. It makes a lot of the others here look grody to the max. And the conversation does go on. I will spare our listeners. <laughs> but I do have one little suggestion. In order to have made this truly authentic, you should have had Richard say at some point, totally like, you know what I mean, dude? <laughs> Gag me with a spoon, dude. <laughs> hey, this was your column, not mine. <laughs> Hi, fans. This is Butch Mock. This is Steve Dews. Dusnesky. Hi, I'm Hut Strickland. This is Robin Pemberton. I uh, just watched your podcast with DK Ulrich. Man, that thing is gold. <laughs> it is just gold. Hello, Scene Vault fans. This is Brian from Speedway Screens. And if you're enough of a NASCAR historian to be listening to this podcast, there's a good chance a piece of the past you've been on the hunt for is in my shop. I'm constantly on the hunt for apparel and collectibles from all genres and eras of motorsports. So whether it be cup cars, dirt modifieds, dragsters, or monster trucks, I've probably got something for you. Check out my inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com and be sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens for the newest items as soon as they drop and for a peek at what I keep for my own collection. As a special thank you to listeners of this show, just enter scene at checkout for 10% off. Speedwaytsj.etsy.com. That's speedwaytsj.etsy.com. This podcast has been brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace. Here is an email from Matthew Mason asking a question that's been pondered many times by many different people. How different do you think the landscape of racing would be if Ernie Irvin hadn't had his terrible accident in 1994 and if we hadn't lost Tim Richmond and Davey Allison so early in their careers? Do you still think Dell Earnhardt would have been a seven-time champion? I think the simple answer to this question is no. There is simply too much talent with those three drivers to think that they would be able to go on and win seven championships without giving up at least one to one of these guys. And I think that Davey Allison, before he came to his tragic end, was on the verge of winning a championship for himself. I think the same could be said of Ernie Irvin. The first thing that I would say is that if Ernie hadn't gotten hurt in 1994, it was anybody's guess as to who was going to win that championship. After Watkins Glen, the race going into Michigan where Ernie got hurt in practice, Dale led Ernie by just 27 points. Nobody else was even close. So yeah, if Ernie runs the rest of that year, Dale Dernsher wouldn't have clinched the championship two races early like he did. 
people point to Dale making championship battles boring by clinching the racer too early. That season in particular, 1994, there should most definitely be an asterisk because of Ernie's accident. Now, Tim Richmond certainly had the talent to win championships, but I can't help but wonder if he would have had the patience to run consistently enough to win a season-long championship. Patience was not Tim's long suit, and I agree with that 100%. He had to get more consistent to win a championship. Nobody can argue that Tim was always going to be flashy, and flashy drivers make flashy moves that work out sometimes, and sometimes they don't. And I believe that that would have been a factor. But yes, I believe that Tim Richmond would have eked out a championship or two or three. But who knows? It's one of those great what-ifs in NASCAR history. And, of course, Davey had everything on his resume except a championship. He was this close to winning it in 1992, but we all know what happened there and how he and Ernie Irvin were able to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. And I'm going to throw somebody else into this mix as well. Rob Moroso. If he had survived and matured, he had the talent to win a championship at the Winston Cup level. The key word there, Rick, is matured. Don't you think? Yeah. Another great NASCAR what if. Listeners, if you have any questions for Steve and or myself, you can email me at rick at com. You can post on X using the hashtag, hashtag AskScenVault, or you can post on our Facebook page. If you have a question, you can get it to us. However, whenever, just send it to us and we will try our best to answer it. Porkchop, Otis, porkchop. <laughs> hey, Adam, how are you? Good. How about Old Dominion beating Appalachian State? Yeah. <laughs> 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 oh, that was cold right there. <laughs> <laughs> then that was the first time ever. Is he really? No. Now, did you graduate from Old Dominion? I sure did. He's graduated. A, from, I think I graduated before your dad was born. Yes, he graduated from Old Dominion. <laughs> <laughs> Blame it on the coach. <laughs>